I'd like to welcome our audience to the National Association of African-American Studies podcast series. My name is Lemuel Berry, Jr. I'm the executive director of the association. I welcome you to this broadcast. Our guest for today is Dr. Trina L. Pelham. Dr. Pelham is a developmental behavior pediatrician. Her journey has been circuitous. At a very young age, she proclaimed her goal to become a pediatrician. She was very focused, rarely deviating from the plan. The path included graduating from the Philadelphia High School for Girls, Hampton Institute, which is now Hampton University, with a BA in Biology and Temple, and Temple University Medical School, followed by a pediatric res residency at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children. Unfortunately, plans became waylaid. In medical school, symptoms of multiple sclerosis manifested and derailed what was to be a straightforward course. Determined to hold onto the dream, she completed fellowship training in a subspecialty that would be less physically demanding, developmental behavior pediatrics. But at last, symptoms of MS became too hard to overcome. Much to her dismay, she left practice due to disability. In the years that followed, she was a volunteer with the National MS Society, speaker, group leader, ambassador, and trustee board member. As one of her interests in pediatric homeless health care, she was the pediatric consultant to Philadelphia Health Management Corporation Healthcare for the Homeless. She was also very active at her church, St. Matthew AME, as a lay member, choir member, nurses unit physician supervisor, and church band percussionist. She also writes prose and poetry. She was a member of the Health Advisory Board for American Legacy Magazine. As we fast forward to March 2020, sensing a collective grief during the, during the month of April, her daily Dr. Trina Post offers suggestions and support to have good mental health. Good day, uh, Dr. Trina, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. And thank you for having me, Dr. Barry. Well, I'm happy to be here. And uh, it shows that maybe uh, talking about mental health and other health issues related to persons of color is something I need to track. Uh, for whatever reason, I address you as Dr. Trina L. Pelham. And then maybe with failed eyesight, I called you Dr. Trina. So that's fine. But anyway, as we move on, I'd like for you maybe uh, uh, to share with us just a few um, issues related to COVID-19 uh, and the, its association, negative association, I guess, with uh, mental health of African-Americans. Well, unfortunately, COVID-19 has been devastating to the world, but particularly to African-Americans we are twice as likely to die from an, a severe infection with the disease. And early on, we were not readily recognized to have been infected. And many people were sent home to let us know what, you know, if you need help. And unfortunately, people, by the time they came back, they were ready to be intubated and die. And then having, let's fast forward, now that we have a vaccine, the other problem with the African-American community is we have a history 
a negative history. I'm sorry for that. Ignore it. We seem to not be readily jumping forward to get the vaccine. And it wasn't really the hesitancy to do like a political hesitancy. It was just, we have a history with the American medical system that limits our trust because first of all, not enough people in the American medical system look like us. And then you really need to trust somebody to take on this vaccine, which has been developed faster than any other vaccine in our lives. But thankfully there are, at least in Philadelphia, associations, there's a new association, a consortium of black doctors led by Alice Sanford, who is a Dr. Alice Sanford, who is a pediatric surgeon who took the ball and ran and she got people tested. And when the vaccine was available, she set up clinics and people have been running to get the vaccine because they trust this person. And also some people trust because let's face it, this messenger RNA vaccine was developed by what? An African-American woman was on the team. So that we have a long way to go, but prayerfully people will decide to get the vaccine and we will reach herd immunity soon enough so that we can move forward to better, which is what I say, rather than everybody wants to go back to normal. I say, no, let's go forward to better. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, um, because there's a number of health issues that uh, can be linked to uh, lifestyle, uh, maybe challenges in one's life. And I'm, is there a connection between uh, the contraction of COVID-19 and let's say being a sickle cell carrier? Uh, does that... Mm. Um, complicate the situation any by carrying that it disease? Any pre-existing illness will complicate the situation. And as you may or may not know, when somebody's in sickle cell crisis, one of the really concerning things that might happen is there might be pneumonia developed because of sickling in the lungs. That would be devastating if there happened to be also an infection with coronavirus. You know, well, COVID-19, uh, I should say. Thank you. Um, and also, you know, we, we know that obesity and diabetes is also um, uh, one of the challenges that we have, not only in the black community, but also in the brown community. So uh, would we would be, uh, be accurate to say that if you are obese, uh, have diabetes, any other type of uh, ailment that catching COVID is going to complicate the situation? Yes, the research does show that persons who are obese and as you said, have diabetes, hypertension, cardiac disease, et cetera, are more at risk from the severe ravages of the disease. And as you aptly noted, unfortunately, much of the black and brown community are afflicted with obesity. And some of that, of course, is due to living in food deserts. Some of that is associated with stress, which makes metabolism of food, of nutrition different. So a lot of, because I saw a piece once where uh, somebody mentioned that 
black women with the stress hormones have a harder time losing weight and there were many other women on there said so all of these diets i've been on have been for nothing but it so it is harder it's not just one size fits all but yes many of our pre-existing illnesses make it harder you know i noticed in your title um uh, a developmental behavior pediatrician. It sounds high powered. Uh, would you uh, maybe for laymen such as myself, uh, tell us what uh, would be the role and possibly the training for a person who's interested in becoming a developmental behavior pediatrician? Okay, so as you see or mentioned before, I finished medical school and I finished a pediatric residency. And that was supposed to be, I was, general pediatrics was what I was shooting for, but multiple sclerosis was, the symptoms of multiple sclerosis caused fatigue and some other issues that made it harder to keep up with the pace of general pediatrics. So it made sense to me that maybe something with a slower pace might help me hold on to my dream of being a pediatrician. But when I had to make this decision, actually, when I was graduating from Temple University Medical School, behavioral developmental pediatrics had just become a fellowship training that was available, three-year training that was available. So it's a pretty new a subspecialty. Why did people see this need for this subspecialty? Well, children are developing beings. And... There are a host of situations that are covered by developmental behavioral pediatrics. The developmental part, cerebral palsy, dyslexia, or, or any other learning disabilities, oh. autism. And then the behavioral part, there are some children just, you know, you, you, what we say, they have a hard head. Well, no, they're oppositional. And unfortunately, we can maybe help them want to behave better because we'd like to do that before they get to something which is known as conduct disorder or and wind up in the legal system. So, and the other thing that we often have to help with is ADHD. Those letters are just known well throughout the, the lay population. But also children read. When somebody leaves due to death, they grieve. Now, the other thing we know they do, they grieve when life changes. Why do we have to move? Why can't we stay in this house? Why, I don't want to, I don't want to. So you have to help them adjust to that. So I say all that to say that anything might come our way on, at any time of the day. We never know. Well, that sounds like a real- And it's exciting. Yeah, it sounds like a real challenging position. It uh, is. Uh, you know, to- Take undertake that responsibility. You know, I I, I know that um, when I looked at uh, your title and your responsibility, and I have a pretty clear understanding of the role that one would play who holds such a position. But as I reflect, um, I know at at this time in the United States, the medical field is being challenged with having an adequate number of uh, people in the health profession. And I know a major cause of that is that the baby boomers are starting to retire. So with that in mind, 
what would be, uh, I guess, your feeling on where we need to uh, fill up the ranks? Or when I, I guess I would say fill up the ranks, I'm thinking about what fields of medicine would you recommend a black or brown student to consider entering? We certainly, actually, we just need more black and brown students. We need them in academics because academic physicians, those who train, make doctors, train doctors to be good doctors, we're still at only 2% of the, the whole populace of those that are academics. And that is where somebody gets a mirror of what they should be. I want to be like Dr. So-and-so. I want to be like Dr. So-and-so. And, but as far as what they want to be interested, what to be interested in, I think uh, you have to go into that, which draws you. Some people find, I find the brain to be fascinating. And therefore it was reasonable for me to look as I was trying to maintain my hold on pediatrics, the, the, road to take was that which was in neurology, but I didn't want to do a neurology fellowship, but developmental behavior, pediatrics. So looking at what the brain, how the brain causes behaviors and personalities and phys physical manifestations to exist. So that I certainly would encourage, I know we need more black males in mental health, psychiatry, is the medical um, medical degree. You would need a medical degree for that. There is psychology too. You don't need a medical degree. But I know that considering where we are with mental health in this country, and particularly in the Black community, Black males in particular don't like to go to anyone that doesn't look like themselves. And we accept that. That's a reasonable thing. They, they want to feel, if you're talking about your problems, you want to feel that somebody understands what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, but that that's specifically for black males, but any aspect of medicine, it would be good to see people in emergency rooms and family medicine, just to see somebody that looks like you that might understand what you're going through brings on relief. Okay. You know, the, uh, uh, for our audience, uh, I guess I'd like to share with them that uh, the two of us had a previous conversation. And I'm just thinking back to an uh, uh, earlier conversation. We we're talking about uh, cultural training. And uh, I'm just wondering whether or not you feel there's a need for uh, persons who are being trained in the health sciences to have some form of cultural training. And I guess I, I say that because in my experiences in traveling uh, to different countries, there's still countries where uh, a female is not permitted to be in a room with a male physician. Or um, there are situations where uh, you have, I'll say, Mexican um, families where no one speaks English. And so there you have the language uh, challenge plus the cultural challenge. Um, and so I guess the, the, the big question uh, behind all this is whether or not uh, those who are being trained as health providers are receiving cultural training so they understand why uh, persons respond to certain activity. 
And if they're not receiving culture training, what would be your recommendation? That's a great question. It was one of my concerns in training. I did a presentation at the conference. I entitled cultural competence for a culturally diverse society for, for healthcare providers. The what I really wanted to name that um, conference was racism, classism, sexism, and medicine but I am politically astute and I know that never would have gotten through. But I wanted to do that presentation is because as a black person, you're often invisible and you can hear things that people just will say out of their mouth as, as we say. And you wanna say, did they really just say that? And so I knew that there needed to be some diversity training and I was, put my toes in the water, but there needs to be so much more because I have read recently, there was, there has always been a thought due to some research done by whom they call father of OB-GYN, I forget his name, I think it's Sims or because he actually even has an OB-GYN tool for the, um, uh, for the operating room, but he, operated on enslaved black women without anesthesia to test pain endurance. And since that has, that has still infected the learning of some people, because I read something recently that some percentage, I, I wanna say it was as high as 25% of medical students still believe that black people don't feel pain the same way as other folks. And there's no good evidence for that. So that there has to be a whole lot of new training. And unfortunately, some of the people who are doing the training now don't know black people. They don't know brown people. They live where they live. They come in to, during the day with their briefcases and they sit and talk and they don't learn anything about their patients or their patients environment and there takes a lot people are resistant to diversity training now and yeah medical i mean medical school requires a lot of time and learning and people say one more thing to learn but yeah if you're going to take care of people you know you need to know about people so i strongly encourage diversity training um there are some there's some programs that are pretty lightweight. As I said, I was just dipping my toes in the water, but I've not been impressed that we're where we need to be yet, which is why I say we need more black and brown people in the mix, black, brown, yellow, and indigenous people. Let's mix it all up. Let's become America. Well, on, a, on another note, and you know, looking at your background, um, I wanted to inquire about uh, your role when it comes to healthcare for the homeless, and uh, basically, basically what that entailed, and what were some of the challenges that you found that were not only medical but maybe uh, uh, social. Well, as you can imagine, if one is homeless and you're getting this prescription to take three times a day. Um, 
that's not sensitive. So I realized there needed to be some, I needed more sensitivity to homeless health care. I needed to figure out what these people needed to do. I needed to figure out what there needed to be done. So what happened when I was doing one of my fellowships to try to, as I said, reclaim my love of medicine, I set up a clinic in a shelter to develop some healthcare that would help um, homeless children be better cared for. Mostly so I can learn about it, so I could teach about it. And that's how um, I became interested in homeless healthcare. And I interested some of my trainees um, because they love to come to the clinic and just see a different world. Because as I, my thing is that people need to know what they're, who they're treating. Fast forward, I had a relapse of multiple sclerosis that caused me to be bedridden, but not giving up. I called the Philadelphia Health Management Corporation because I knew they had homeless health care. And I called and I said, I said, <laughs> I remember the call. I said, hi, this is Dr. Pelham, and I would like to volunteer with your organization. And of course, there was a long pause because they couldn't believe that a doctor was calling to volunteer with them. And so that's how I got involved with Philadelphia Health Management Corporation and then developed the, the position to be a pediatric consultant soon after that, which, as I said, so I got to visit many shelters and many situations of people who were transitioning from homelessness but it's it's a very it it really takes a different thought because you can't just as i say give a script and say take this three times a day take with water well they might not have access to that mm-hmm. well you know the, <clears throat> we we do have a problem across the united states with the homeless and it's embarrassing I, yeah i and i can only imagine what they're going through uh, with um, with COVID, with with COVID, and uh, if we had, uh, or I shouldn't say if we, uh, would you be able to maybe identify maybe even some of the resources that uh, the homeless uh, could call upon to help them transition through this COVID situation, uh, and then maybe other healthcare situations that need to be addressed. Well, thankfully. In shelters, there are usually social workers. And now I think it's pretty common to have docs in the shelters or at least connect with a medical organization. But unfortunately, on the street, there's not. And so I don't, um, unfortunately, I honestly don't know what is happening with people who are living on the street because Rightfully, some people don't want to go to shelters. They're not necessarily that safe. Um, so some people are living in their cars. Mm-hmm. And you might not know. But we have a, we have a lot of work to do. But when they, the, those who are homeless and people living in their car, and I'm also thinking about um, those persons who have had a steady income, uh, a uh, place for themselves and their family and all of a sudden because of COVID uh, they unable to you know pay their mortgage and they go through this 
major transition in a relatively short period of time. So the, I guess the, the issue or question would be, what type of support would these individuals need? Uh, because you have, you have a child who's been in the bedroom, now the child is sleeping on the back seat of the car while you sleep on the front seat. And they're not, they're not, they don't have access to the, the foods that they had in the past. So are the recommendations that you would give to some of these individuals? Because I, I would uh, anticipate that even once we get beyond COVID, that many of these same people who have been working for years and being able to take care of their families are going to be unemployed. So they go into another state of possibly depression or another medical challenge. They are experiencing shock, shall we say. Mm -hmm. One of the first stages of grief because all of a sudden things were rolling along just fine and now they don't have access to what they had. They can't provide for their families the way they used to be able to. There's no stability in their lives. And very often people who have been able to provide for themselves are not the first ones who will seek help from the social workers in the shelters when they should. They act because that's, that is, they, social workers know where you can get help. And the ones who can help people in homeless situations, they're usually, as I said, located in shelters. At least that's what has been my experience with healthcare, Philadelphia Health Management Corporation Healthcare for the Homeless. There are some roaming, some people do the roaming truck kind of thing where they're passing out food and offering their social services. It might be hit or miss, but the best source is a shelter because you have somebody there who knows how to get you what you need. And you're going to need a lot for, because it's a shock. It's a trauma. You were rolling along doing what America says to do. And suddenly you got shut down and it's horrible. Mm -hmm. And then to hear on television as, as the chest is often beat, we're the richest country in the world. It's like, no, you can't say that and have people living on the streets. Yeah. And and I know this, uh, this period of time, this last year has been devastating. Like you mentioned earlier that at one point, um, we thought we'd be shut down for two weeks and then it's going to be a month. And then um, there's this big explosion of cases across the United States. And now we're a year plus. Um, I know that uh, uh, over the next uh, coming year that people will have a challenge. And uh, what you said, uh, I'm hoping that persons who are listening in our audience and those who have family members who are going through challenging times will consider um, seeing uh, a social worker or someone who works with people for mental health issues, because it will be, for many, it'll be a recurrent experience. They're going to go from being unemployed and homeless uh, with COVID to uh, getting through COVID and still having to deal with how do I get back on my feet, which can be a challenge. So I know we're running out of time. I wonder whether you have any uh, closing remarks that you would like to give. Uh, I can say why I, I put you on the spot with that. I, I really, uh, 
thought that at one point you were going to talk to us about uh, the uh, Tuskegee Institute, uh, not the institution, but the trial test there and everything, because that is another reason we know why, uh, why people are fearful of taking this vaccine. Thank you for the lead, but understand that Tuskegee experiment was an experiment. The vaccine has been approved. The experiments have been done. Tuskegee was horrendous. It is absolutely unacceptable, but let's remember this vaccine is probably the safest formulation that has been out there. I, because it is information. It's not a killed virus. It's not a live virus. It's information from the virus to tell the body, hey, watch this, watch this critter in your body. Mm -hmm. Versus, versus like, because there, there was somebody who asked me, well, would they give me the real vaccine or is it a placebo? And I said, no, we are long past placebo. Mm -hmm. You are getting the real vaccine. And right. that it and the vaccine is straight. And tell folks, I got my vaccine last Thursday. I was so happy. I've never been so happy to get a shot in my life because I have been on a quest for it since February the second. And it's really unfortunately too hard for people to find, but that's up to the administration to fix because we've got to get this vaccine into arms. Well, I'm hoping that uh, everyone who is in our listening audience. Uh, takes heed to it. Not only persons of color, but all Americans um, take heed and uh, make sure they uh, get the vaccine because uh, it has no parameters, no, no boundaries, no borders. And so it does not care about your lifestyle, how rich you are. So uh, in closing, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Pelham for giving of her time, uh, sharing information and uh, Actually, being we would say jolly on the spot with some of the questions I raised because uh, as she was talking, she stimulated my thought and I and just led from one one issue to another. So again, Dr. Pelham, thank you for your time, and I'll have to have you back again real soon. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great it's been day. My pleasure. You too.